but it was late on a Friday. I slammed the document down on my desk and then I made the the big mistake of going straight to the email and typing right then what I thought of the document and sent the email off. And I didn't reply just to the one person that it sent it to me. No, I replied to all and just, you know, just let them reply all reply all. Just let everybody know what I think about this poorly written document. But there's a better way to do things. Yeah. And so I took that opportunity to, to eat a little humble pie. And I think this is an important lesson. If you're going to blast somebody out in front of everybody, then you need to be man enough or woman enough to apologize to everyone and not just to that one person. So I right. sent an email the very next day and apologized in to the person, but in front of the entire group and then followed it up with a call and it was very well received. But hmm. the point is, again, yes, a lot of it is about humility. I don't think anyone, as much as I would like to say, I'm always right. And I joked earlier about, you know, with arguments with my husband that I'm always right, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm not always going to be right. I don't always have all the experiences or the viewpoint or vantage that the other person does. And it's about being humble, about being able to also see things and learn things. And I think that's an important part of being a lawyer, being able to learn something new. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 7, Glass Breakers. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. That'll get me into the new and noteworthy section. I think if I get 50 reviews, I can make it there. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up, and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. This week, you'll hear my conversation with Jocelyn Eason. Joe is an attorney in North Carolina. She's a friend I've known since our time together as classmates at the Air Force Academy. Her family did not have much growing up, but what they did have is a value for education and hard work. Joe overcame many doubters, including her guidance counselor, who said she could never get into the Air Force Academy to succeed and not only get into the academy, but graduate and have a successful career in the military. After that, she pursued a career in the law where she first worked at a law firm and then moved on to being an in-house lawyer with Wells Fargo. Since the taping of this interview, I found out that Joe got promoted to chief operating officer and the senior counsel to the Consumer Banking and Corporate Regulatory Division of the Wells Fargo Law Department. That's a super long title that means that she's moving on up within Wells Fargo like the Jeffersons. In the interview, she's going to talk to us about the lifestyle challenges of working in a law firm and then what it's like to move to being an in-house lawyer. That's a place you want to be feeling a more nine to five type schedule. And if you maybe don't want to be in front of people, don't worry. Being a lawyer doesn't mean you have to always be in front of the crowd or be a great public speaker. She talks about the skills you can have if you know how to research or do great analysis. There's a great opportunity for you to use the law to advance yourself and your career. She discusses the power of humility and how that leads to letting her know the importance of learning how to learn new things so you can be effective in multiple areas as a counselor to the folks who you're serving. What I was impressed by is also that Joe uses everyone to be a mentor. 
There's no one she doesn't learn from, from her kids to the most senior person in a corporation. And the other thing that was cool is she uses every single obstacle as a chance to learn herself more about who she needs to be, how she can grow, and how she can be shaped into something better. And if her humility doesn't work and she can't convince you with her arguments, she's a third degree black belt, so she will whip your tail if need be. So please enjoy my interview with Jocelyn Eason. Jocelyn, welcome to the show. Thank you, TQ. Thank you. So, you know, we go back a long way, uh, over 20 years, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation to have people benefit from from your life story. So why don't you um, help people out and, and tell us a little bit about your background. Let's do a lightning round background to so give us the highlights of your growing up and, um, and how that got you to maybe in through the professional uh, post-academy career. Wow. Well, first of all, when I hear you say 20 years, that um, sounds a lot more daunting than what I thought it did because maybe I still think I'm in my twenties in, in my internal self. I hear you. But, um, <laughs> so let's go over 41 years in, in a lightning round. Um, I am originally from South Carolina, born in a small town called Cheryl, South Carolina, but, uh, raised in Spartanburg, which is sort of big city, I guess, for small town, South Carolina. Um, went to public schools, grew up, uh, relatively poor, I'd say. Um, didn't have a, a lot of opportunities, but my parents worked really hard to give me the opportunities that they could and make things happen. Um, education was very, very important in my family, and that has paid off, I think, huge dividends. Um, my parents made sure that we grew up in the church, uh, that we were well-grounded, that we had a good sense of God first then family and education was quickly behind. Um, so if I wasn't somewhere doing something in the church or hanging out with my family, I was doing something in school. Um, fast you forward could, to high school. Quick oh, um, question. When you say yeah. you grew up relatively poor, can you give an example of like what that looked like? Um, my dad had epilepsy. And by the time, I think it was when I was in, elementary school maybe was when he had to stop working altogether because he had had a couple of car accidents related to his epilepsy as well as on the job. And so my mom was the only one that was working. Now my dad had a college education. My mom had done a couple of years of college, but my dad had actually graduated. So my mom was somewhat limited at the time to the types of work that she was able to do. So she worked mostly in factory type settings. Yeah. Um, there were three kids. Um, so it was literally paycheck to paycheck. Right. A lot of times we had to depend upon other family members. I, I'll put it to you this way. I remember distinctly as a kid, there was a bakery shop that we used to go to occasionally. It was the Merida. I, I don't know if they still make bread, but it was the Merida. I think it was the name of it. Um, Dale Bakery. I didn't realize it was the Dale Bakery at the time. And there were times where my parents would take us to the bakery and we'd have only a few dollars. And they'd tell us, you know, each of you can pick out five to, to 10 of these different snack cakes. And the snack cakes would be roughly about 10 cents a piece. So we're talking about, you know, they give us a dollar to $2 each to spend. And so we're getting things like honey buns and oatmeal cream pies. And for us kids, it was like, this is awesome. I get like honey buns galore. Right. And we would take those home. And then my parents would get a gallon of milk and we basically 
fill up for the day on, or at least for part of the day anyway, on snack cakes. Mm. And at the time that just seemed like that was a, a good, fun way to have a good time. Uh, looking back, it was probably because money was tight. Yeah. And so that was a, a quick, cheap way to fill us up. So yeah, um, I was not rocking the, the latest stylish brands. <laughs> we didn't have cable TV, but we had each other and we loved each other a lot. So yeah, wow. we were poor, but okay. we were happy. I understand. So you, you, uh, you, you pushed through that and you said education was important. Yes. Education was very important. Um, even when we were little kids, my mom was at home reading with us, teaching us to read and, and do mathematics and incorporate it into our everyday lives. And then once we were in school, um, you know, you had to put forth your best effort. I right. would cry if I got a B. And it wasn't because my parents were upset with me for the B, but it was because I always pushed myself because I believed that I could always do better. Um, so, you know, it just education was it was just it was very important. I guess some at some point, maybe in an early age, I had a sense that that was the way out and the way to access a different type of lifestyle. So how did yeah. that um, what's like an early accomplishment you remember that's big for you um, in that period of time? Um, I think the earliest accomplishment I can remember academically was there was a gifted and talented program that the public school had. It was called Odyssey. And I think you started testing for it in the second grade, if I remember correctly. And when it was time for testing, they didn't want to, they didn't want to test me. And my mom fought very hard and went and actually, I think, met with the principal and possibly even the superintendent and insisted that I needed to be tested. And once she was successful in fighting that battle and I tested, I immediately was accepted into the program and that began to give me access to different, a different environment. So we would literally get bused to a different school. I want to say it was either one or two days a, a week and we would do science experiments. I dissected my first frog on my mom's kitchen table in the fourth grade. Wow. Um, just, you know, it just opened a lot of doors, made me very curious about a lot of things, but also I think gave me a sense of empowerment, even at a young age, that if you work hard and you fight hard and you don't always just take no for an answer, right. that you can tap into some things that you might not have thought would have been possible. So very nice. Um, advocacy for your kids is big. Like my son is just now starting kindergarten and, and um, he's been able to do numbers since he was two, he can count to a hundred and he's doing math and reading, I think like on a third or fourth grade level. So we're really working hard to figure out how we can advocate for our kids. And it sounds like your mom big time did that for you. So that, that I'm sure that helped push you all the way towards your, your pursuit of the Academy. What was your sweep down to, to that decision? Um, so there was my chemistry teacher in the 10th grade. His name was Mr. McDaniel. And every morning he would start class by taking, you know, 30 seconds, one minute and telling us about his son's freshman year at the air force Academy. And at that point I had never heard of the school, didn't know anything about West point, none of the academies. And I was absolutely just fascinated. They were exciting stories and, you know, just hearing about his freshman experience and something clicked. And I said, this is this is what I want. So I remember I went and talked to uh, the guidance counselors and said, hey, you know, I want to do this 
this Air Force Academy thing. And I knew by that point, after talking to Mr. McDaniel and hearing the stories, I also understood that, you know, my parents wouldn't have to pay for it. And that was huge for me to be able to go to college and not put that burden or expense on my parents, but get a top rated education. Um, so when I went to the guidance counselor's office, I was, I was really excited. I can't tell you how excited I was. And then I was met with one of the most disappointing experiences in my life because what the guidance counselor said to me was, yes, you're smart. Yes, you're capable. But that as a black female coming from the school that I was coming from, that at best, I would be able to get into West Point and it would be because of athletics and because I was a minority. Wow. Um, so like the he, Air Force that person Academy actually said was, that? Yes. And they said that the Air Force Academy was more technical and that you had to be smarter to get into that one. And so my chances were very, very slim. Wow. Getting in there. Yeah. So that was a that was a decision point for me. And sure. it was like, what are you going to do with that? And so how did that hit my, you? How did it hit me? Um, I guess, honestly, if I'm to be honest, at first, something like that really throws you. Right. Yeah. And then you and then you have that decision point where you can either ball up and, and take it and accept what they've said. Right. And internalize that. Or you can do something with it and use it to drive you. And thankfully, I was able to do something with it and use it to drive me. OK. Um, I went and talked to my parents and they worked with me. I mean, I was not an athlete in school. Let me tell you. <laughs> so the guidance counselor definitely had it wrong there. I wasn't going to get in because of athletics. <laughs> my um, parents had to go out and buy a pull-up bar and put it in our laundry room, which is still there to this day, but they now use it to hang laundry on. Right. <laughs> and my dad would hold my feet and I would practice pull-ups and I would run laps in the backyard and he would time me oh, and I would do pushups and I had to train to get to the point where I needed to be physically. And, uh, you know, taking the SAT, I think I took it two or three times to get my English score, a verbal score up to where it needed to be because okay. my math score was rocking. Um, and it was just it was a constant like we worked at it, Tiki. We worked at it really, really hard. And I applied to both. West Point and the Air Force Academy. Didn't yeah. want to do Navy. I've never been one for open seas for long periods of time. Heard that. And uh, I got into both West Point and the Air Force Academy. First shot, first round, and went and took those respective uh, green and, and blue folders. If you remember those, that they come yeah. in the acceptance certificate. Took those to my guidance counselor and uh, was like, yeah, there you go. Did you slam them on the desk hard or what, <laughs> what did you have to drop it on them? No, always be humble. Always okay, be humble. I'll use it. Never, okay. never burn any bridges. So I got it that. was it was it was a moment of pride, I think. So it's funny, I I, uh, I remember actually I applied to all the academies. I went to the summer scientific seminars at all of them, which are during your junior to senior year, summer, where all the science nerds go to 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 um, co-mingle and see what the military academy life would be like. And I, I went and talked to the guy at the Naval Academy, um, like table at the or college night. And mm -hmm. I said, are there any careers in the Navy that involve you not having to swim? <laughs> and he says, son, this is the Navy. And I said, well, okay, I'll holler at you, <laughs> you know, on to the I'm next one. On to the next table. <laughs> exactly. So I, I appreciate that, man. And you didn't let you use that for fuel. And I think what I like to hear is I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday with um, JJ Watt, who's a, a, a great, 
like all pro football player for the Houston Texans. And he was saying the same thing, like for him to make it to the pros, he had to figure out what it took to get there. He produced a training regimen that he had and he worked it out. And I could just see you with the Rocky music in the background, doing your pull-ups and, and running your laps and, and just setting a goal for yourself. And, and it sounds like that's how you use that fuel to overcome what was a, a straight up knock against your ability to even achieve what you were trying to achieve. Yeah, I think so. Uh, minus the Rocky music, of course. Too bad we didn't we didn't video it and try to put some music over it. Right, right. But what is cool is I think our class year had maybe five or six black females out of 1,300 people who came into the class. So you were a rare um, uh, entity, um, but you were able to accomplish it. And, and how did that carry you into your time at the Academy? What are some some highlights of your, your ability to succeed through that whole process. Wow. So the Academy, wow, that was such an experience. Um, now if we're going to be honest and you might remember this too, TQ basic training was, Ooh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, spent the first couple of weeks, literally hyperventilating my way through those early morning runs and uh, I think we were at chapel one day and other cadets were uh, laying hands on me, praying <laughs> that I would <laughs> make it through. Um, prayer, prayers were answered, thank God. And I finally got to the point where I could make it to a run. The altitude was kicking a girl's tail. Right. Um, the academy, you know, when I got there, it was it was such a different environment for me in so many ways. I often tell people and, you know, everybody has to make decisions that work for them, for their background and where they're coming from and what they want to achieve. Um, I, again, grew up in a family that was fairly religious. I won't say I was sheltered, but I certainly wasn't out there. I didn't get my first boyfriend until I was like 20. Um, right. <laughs> so I, I, I just, it was eye opening for me in so many ways. I remember the first Two semesters, I worked really hard and I was, you know, pushing to get the grades. And then it was like something clicked and I discovered boys and I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) So I went through a stage where I was, you know, finding myself and finding out who I am and what I have to offer. And then I think the thing that I love. How did you keep from losing yourself or how did you ultimately find yourself in that process? Well, and that's what I was about to say. I think the thing that was most amazing about the Academy experience, you know, I joke about boys and all these different things, but I think the thing that was most interesting for me is I have friends that some of them grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods and then intentionally chose to go to HBCUs mm-hmm. so that they could get that black experience black and learn friends, to identify. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, you know, I grew up where most of the classmates were white And so I think I needed that black experience too. But ironically, I think I learned more about what it means to be black by being at the academy in a very predominantly, what were we, less than 4% black at the time when you and I were there. Yeah. Um, And I learned so much about what it meant to be a black female in that environment. And how's that? I got close to people and learned from them and their experiences. And it just helped to shape and identify who I was and who I wanted to be. What, what did you learn? So h- how, how were you able to learn in that environment or, or what maybe key thing or two stood out? Um, 
you know, I, I think I learned that it's, it's not just okay. It's a good thing to seek out people that look like you, people that share the same ideas as you, people that have the same values as you, same skin color, same hair texture, just as it's okay to seek out and be friends and connect with people who aren't. And I finally got a sense of, I didn't have to try to hide who I was in order to be successful. I could just be me. And if being me meant that I wanted to hang out with my fellow black cadets, then that was cool. If being me on any given night meant I wanted to hang out with maybe some of the the white cadets, that was cool too. It didn't define or negate who I was in any shape, form, or fashion. I guess I just, leading up to the academy, I think I had some kind of warped sense that in order to be successful, that, you know, you kind of had to hide or shelter that black part of myself. And I learned that I could embrace exactly who I am and how I am in any environment. How do you think, because a lot of times, um, and even, you know, the, the, the talk you hear oftentimes is about assimilating to the culture and, um, conforming to what the norms are, um, to be successful, you know, um, for people to code switch, so to speak. And how did you, how did you get that comfortability in an environment where, you know, you should be more uncomfortable and feel like you should ought to conform? What, what inside of you took you to that place to say, I can just be me? You know, I would be lying if I said that there's not some level of still turn it on, turn it off. Right. Um, but I think it's less of turning on and turning off who I am and more of tempering how much of myself I allow to be shared depending upon the setting and the environment. Um, that, that, that's a lot there, but there, there's a lot to be said there. So, and I could go off on so many tangents here from how you wear your hair, depending upon if it's a job interview or, you know, there's just so many different experiences that I've had over the years. But I think the important part is just, I, regardless of what I do, how I act, how I may speak, what I choose to wear, how I choose to wear my hair. My skin's always going to be what my skin is. My hair is always going to be the texture that my hair is. I am who I am. And so I can't turn that off. And so I can't deny that. People are going to see that. Anybody that says they don't see that, I, I don't think they're telling the truth. We see that. We see each other, right? Um, so I have to embrace that. And I have to learn to love me first. And when you do that, then you can go into any environment confident mm. and carry your head high and just be yourself, mm. if that makes sense. No, big time, big time. And I think self-love is important. There, It wasn't some special technique. I'm sure your faith anchored you as well. Um, but loving yourself was a major, major component, it sounds like to me. It was. And you know what? It doesn't stop. It's not something that I can say that it just clicked in my twenties or it clicked in my thirties or heck now in my forties. <laughs> it's, it's a lifelong process of learning to love yourself because 
yourself is constantly changing. Your physical characteristics change. Um, we haven't seen each other in years, TQ, but you might be surprised to know I'm full head of gray hair at this yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> you, you change. And I had to learn to love myself and be confident with my gray hair. And that wasn't something that just happened overnight. Right. You have kids, your body shape changes. You got to learn to love that. So it's a continual struggle and a process. And also your, your sense of self, your soul, your spirit, your intellect, those things change too. Right. And by, you know, all of your life's experiences, as you learn different things, you're constantly evolving and changing. And as you evolve and change, it's, getting comfortable in your own skin and embracing those changes and loving that process of change and also loving the process of there are certain things that you'll never change and they just are who you are. That's, I really like to hear that. And, um, and the fact that you like for me too, it's been a process of, uh, I think there are some, kids, probably young age who I've heard a lot of successful folks and a lot of successful people's stories that their parents instilled a lot of confidence in them. And as they are not trying to make them something different. Um, it sounds like your parents started on that process with you doing that. And you've grown along the way to learn to love and appreciate and accept yourself for who you are no more, no less. And in this modern age of social media and everyone's life looks better than mine and being able to do snap uh, uh, snapshots of, of this is my life, how it is, but it's only the perfect moments makes people, I think sometimes feel like they need to be somebody else like this other person who they see to be happy or successful. But what you're saying, I think is powerful that if you just learn to love and, and appreciate and respect yourself, um, and growing that over time, that's a big, as big a key to success and accomplishment as anything is. And for the record, I've seen the salt and pepper and it looks very beautiful. So, so you wear it well. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, let's fast forward to um, you graduate the academy and, and now you're in your career in the Air Force. How did that how was life like in the Air Force and what led you down the, the pathway to be an attorney? Life in the Air Force was, oh, amazing. I absolutely loved it. Um, from the time that I graduated, I was dead set that I was going to do at least 20 years that I was going to at least be a full bird colonel and retire, maybe be a general. And I was going to trailblaze and go all the way. I went into, um, what was it? 14 in three. So I was an intelligence officer and one of my first assignments was down at Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina. Okay. Um, I was part of what was then CENTAF, Central Command Air Forces. And that was in 1999 when I was stationed there. Um, went on my first deployment to Saudi Arabia. Um, had a great time there, got to connect with some old friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And that was a, a wonderful experience. Cause you were near home, right? Yeah. Sumter is about an hour and a half from home. So I did get to see my parents a little bit, but not nearly as often as you would think, because the irony is central command air forces was also responsible for the middle East. Okay. And so that was 1999. I got stationed there. Um, 2001, September 11th happened. Wow. 
And I was on one of the first planes headed overseas to respond. We literally were in a plane and we were rolling out maps trying to figure out which country we were going to go after. Oh, my goodness. And we had not even yet cleared which country we were going to land in. There were three different options. And so we were trying to figure that out and connecting with the White House and the Pentagon as we were over the Atlantic Ocean to figure out which way we were actually going to go. Wow. So that was um it was all the different things that you would think that that would be. It was a pride, fear, excitement, um, you know, anticipation, anxiety. Um, just, it was, it was an amazing opportunity to have that. Um, then when we went back and, uh, had the Iraq war, the second one, um, I was there again, deploying. And so again, Pride being there when the first bombs are being dropped and helping to plan all that and the excitement of it all. But what I came to realize, as much as I loved my Air Force career, I was always, it seemed, gone. So I'd be home for maybe three months, four months, and then I was gone again. And I started to question, you know, <laughs> yeah, why I was doing all of this. Um, you know, I was getting closer to 30 by that point. Um, it, it just got to be a lot. And at some point after I had PCS to a, a different base, I was at Langley, but on another deployment, I had like my epiphany moment. I was working on my master's. I was very close to finishing it, but I had gotten deployed again. Um, and I deployed with my books. I finished my master's, came back, went on another deployment this particular deployment, I had to take intelligence products and deliver them to different um, bases of operation throughout the air, the AOR area of responsibility. So I was going in and out of Iraq and Kuwait and Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and all these different places. And I remember, um, you know, I'm missing holidays because of these deployments and wars and missing birthdays, missing life events with my family. And remember, we started this by talking about how important God and family were to me. That was like my foundation of, of how I was raised. And I was snowed in, in, I think it was Kyrgyzstan when we were in a, a tent and I couldn't get out. And I finally got to email and was able to make a call home because I realized that my uncle Bill, who I've been very close to, had died and I couldn't get home for the funeral. There's oh, no man. way I was going to be able to make it. I was snowed in the funeral. By the time I got the email, I think the funeral was like the next day, two days later, something like that. And so I, I got to a satellite phone and was able to call home, called and was speaking to my grandmother, you know, passing on condolences to all the family members. And I remember my grandmother asked me, she said, baby, well, well where are you? Yeah. And I was trying to explain to her, I was like, well, I mean, I'm in, I, think, I can't remember if it was Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan. It was one of the stands. And she's like, well, where is that? And I was like, somewhere between Russia, Iran, China, right. you know, over there. And it just dawned on me. I was like, you know, I don't know that I can keep this pace. I don't know that I want to keep this pace for right. my life. I was single. Didn't look like I was ever going to get married um, or have kids or, or any of that. So that was the point where I kind of had the aha moment. And it was time to do something different. So, 
Yeah, that's there's a lot there. Um, for one <laughs> thing, you were on the tip of the sword. I mean, it sounds like within days or hours of September 11th, you were flying out to deal with that whole situation on the front end, the, 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 as near as a tip as you can be without being, a, a, um, you know, having arm, armaments or a gun in your hand. Yeah, we got our orders to leave on the 13th. Wow. And then there was a delay because they couldn't get the clearance and we were wheels up on September 16th. Jeez Louise. I mean, people don't see the other side of serving in the military. I don't think. I think because our armed forces is so small relative to the population of the U.S. It doesn't touch as many people as it, it probably used to um, in times past. But you make a lot of sacrifices to be part of that. And, and like you said, as a, a person who a woman who wanted to be married and have a family and a family was important. It was a big impact. Um, I wonder there's that piece. And at the same time, you were you were persevering through that and getting your master's degree at the same time. How in the world were you doing school while you were flying from stand to stand um, and across the world? How, how did you manage to to accomplish all of that um, at the same time? I know you're ambitious, but boy, how did you balance those things? I, I would love to tell you that it was easy, but it wasn't. Um, I was very fortunate that Dr. Seaboat, who is a retired uh, Fulberg colonel, from, and he graduated from the Air Force Academy, and he was my um, academic director, there we go, for the program that I was doing my master's. And so he knew, and he, it was you know a program that was being run partially through the base, a satellite program. And so when it was time for me to deploy, I was about six months from being done with my master's and literally like I had one go bag with all my my gear and stuff that I needed. And he and a, loaded a go me bag, up. a go bag for people that don't know is. Oh, sorry. A big green like the big green bags, your deployment bag. So yeah. your clothes, your gas mask, um, whatever other equipment and stuff. If you're carrying a nine millimeter or whatever you need, uh, your Kevlar in, in the big green bag that you deploy with. So I had okay. like one or two green go bags with my stuff that I needed for my job. And then I took one that was literally filled with books and wow. materials that I got from my academic director because he basically front loaded me with here are the classes that you're going to take. You're going to uh, like, he worked with, uh, Troy university, um, to have one professor even allow me to take a class that wasn't ever supposed to be a satellite program as a satellite um, online and submit papers and research. And so I, we front loaded and planned all of that um, leading up to one of the deployments. And then I just, you know, I'd work my shift of 12 to 13 hours while I was deployed and then put in two or three hours and, you know, do some research, do some work and, yeah, just plugged through. wasn't easy, wasn't necessarily fun, but I made it through. So, first of all, it sounds again like you're preparing to get into the academy, which is you saw what the plan was. Um, you drew something out. You had some support, uh, like you before it was from your parents. This time, it was from uh, your academic advisor um, to be able to accomplish the goal that you set for yourself. Which I think, um, oftentimes, people sort of either do things on their own or they don't have a clear plan whenever they're going to execute. But that allowed you to, to make some major um, advances and accomplishments in the middle of a of a, a tumultuous time. If, if there could be one with all this travel around the world and all the national security issues. And 
Um, it's hard to appreciate what it was like during those years, I think, in the place we're at now. But that's, I think, one thing. And the other one is, I wonder what what characteristics internal to Joe allowed you to think that way and then be successful in the middle of this um, personal, you know, guilt or or uh, desire to be back home uh, or this guilt around not being around family. So what's inside of you that still allowed you to succeed during those times? What characteristics would you say? Um, well, I'm going to back up for a second. I think you tapped on something and I, I think this is important. So if you'll allow me, I, I think it's always important to, to one, have a plan to two, be flexible and to three, have support. Right. And not necessarily always in that order. Right. right. So with everything, I always try to build a plan. Um, I think they called it the six P's when we were at the Air Force Academy. Prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Right. So you got to right. plan. And then despite the plan. Right. I planned to have a career in the Air Force. Um, sometimes things change and you got to be flexible and you have to adapt. I planned to finish my entire master's while I was stateside didn't quite work out like that. So you have to be flexible and adapt. And when you're trying to be flexible and adapt your plan, that's when I find that it's really, really important that you have support, right? Um, for me, first and foremost, that's God and prayer and reconnecting with my spiritual sense of who I am. Yeah. Um, and then it's family and friends and, you know, peers, colleagues, being able to ask for help, being able to ask somebody um, for guidance, their opinion. Hey, how did you make it work? Hey, how can I do this? What do you see? Those types of things. It, it really is, I think, important to get you to where you want to be. It's it's I would love to say and take credit and be like, it's all internal and it comes from inside. But a lot of times it doesn't. There were a lot of life goal dreams. I wanted to be a physician for years since the time I was five. Right. And I had a literally snot bubble crying moment where I had to finally break down and realize that that wasn't what was meant for me. And that wasn't the path that I was going to take. And that required a whole lot of support from family and friends and flexing and planning to get through that. So it's, I would love to say that it's just something that's inside of me. Sure. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I would like to think that I'm a very strong individual, but I also know that I have a lot of weak points and that's when I really lean hard on those around me. Yeah. And that's the, those around you are important. Um, at the same time, you seem very self-aware. So even if there's one thing, what is one thing you would say internally? So is it just the planning and the flexibility that you have or the, the, the ability to plan to be flexible? Or is there something internally, you know, OK, this thing about me is something that either I developed intentionally or that I developed along the way without knowing it that, that allowed you to be able to to accomplish the things that you have? Honestly, I would say it's a. It's more than just a can do. It's a sense of perseverance. Never quit. Um, I remember when I was in Sunday school as a kid, 
one of my favorite Bible verses, and it to this day is my favorite all-time Bible verses, Philippians 4.13, hmm. which says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to repeat that verse to myself to get through. I've run a, a, a marathon. I've walked a marathon and a half in two days. Um, the deployments, two bar exams for two different states. Um, and the list goes on and on and on of really tough situations, birthing two children. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I, I, I literally, I call on that verse and that that's where the perseverance comes from, because I really truly believe that if I work hard enough at something, if I want it enough, I can do anything that I set my mind to. Right. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean that I may not have to cry through whatever it is. But if I really want it, I really pray for it. I work hard. You can't just sit back and expect it to happen. It will happen if you work hard at it and you really want it. So I, I guess that's the one internal thing for me is I truly believe that if I want something enough, there is nothing I can't accomplish. Very nice. So you, the next out of the Air Force, you're deciding this is too much for me in terms of time and, and commitment to family and your life pace. Uh, what was the move like to becoming an attorney? I didn't know that I wanted to be an attorney. I always feel a little guilty about this because I know a lot of my classmates in law school, they were very altruistic and um, wow, they had visions and goals of saving the world and righting all the wrongs and ensuring justice for, you know, everyone. Um, and that wasn't me. For me, it was I wanted to get out of the Air Force. I needed to do something different. But I truly believe that God has given each of us a different set of goals or, or gifts and talents and that we should tap into those and use those. And so I kind of took stock of my gifts and talents. Um, my academic advisor, Dr. Sebo, that I mentioned earlier, had suggested long ago when I first started working on my master's, he was like, you'd be a good one for uh, going to law school. And my then boyfriend, now husband, had also said several times to me prior to that, you know, you should just go be a lawyer. And when everyone else was said it, it I just was arguing of, all the time and he was winning. Well, well, well maybe. Don't tell him I said that. I always win. I'm always right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think when everyone else was saying it to me, I wasn't believing it. But right. then when I had that moment where it was like I needed to do something else and I needed an out. Um, it just seemed like the next logical step. So in between deployments, I started applying uh, to law schools and actually got the decisions from the law schools while I was on my what would then be my very last deployment in the Air Force. Yeah. OK. And getting into law school is that's one of those. You know, oftentimes in minority communities, like be a doctor or a lawyer and you wanted to do both and got one out of the two. <laughs> yes. And uh, so what is like what key steps are required for somebody who wants to be a lawyer? So so what are the things they need to do, um, like exams and whatnot? And then what are some of the traits that are important for that person? As far as key steps, you're going to have to take the LSAT, L-S-A-T. Um, if you're not a standardized test taker. 
I strongly recommend that you uh, invest some money in a prep course, even if you think you're a standardized test taker and maybe you haven't taken the standardized test in quite some time. Um, it can't hurt you to take one of the prep courses that are offered. I think I did mine through Kaplan. I won't say that it was cheap, but it helped me to get the score that I needed to get in order to get into law school. And that's one of the first things that law schools are going to look at. And if you don't have that score that they're looking for, um, sad as it may seem, a lot of doors may automatically be closed because of that. Um, they're, of course, going to look at your your academic background to the extent that you've been out in the workforce. They're going to look at that. Um, so being well-rounded and having some accomplishments. The other thing that most law schools, and I believe they still stick to this, is the personal essay. Uh, you have to write a, a personal essay and the subjects, the topics that people write about ranges greatly. But I can't emphasize enough how much seems to ride on that personal essay. It's like really? you presenting yourself on a piece of paper. Hmm. And there is, uh, and wow, I, I just forgot the name of the author, but there is a black individual. I'll get back to you on the, the name of the author, TQ. I apologize. Um, but he got into, I think it was Harvard law. Okay. And so it's a compilation of different essays that have successfully gotten students into Harvard law. And I want to say he, he, I want to say he might've been an air force Academy graduate. Yeah, um, we can get it later and I'll put it in the show notes. Right. But that book was very pivotal to, to me. I read that book, read the essays, got a sense of what I needed to do. And then you have to write that essay. So that's something if you're interested in going to law school, Definitely spend some time and some research thinking about what you want to do with that personal essay. And then it's just about choosing a school that works for you. Right. Um, there's a lot of law schools out there. It depends upon what you want to do. If you're trying to be, you know, in corporate law or are you trying to go into a big law firm? Do you want to be a state's attorney? You know, what your goals are um, sometimes can dictate where you need to go because depending upon where you go to law school will determine sometimes which doors are open to you. If you look at the Supreme court justices, if you want to be one of the, the fabulous nine, you'll see that over the years, there's a limited number of law schools that they went to. Um, so, you know, sometimes it really matters depending upon what you want to do. So you ended up at William and Mary and, yes. um, and, and in terms of succeeding in law school, what kind of characteristics are important to be able to succeed there and do well? Um, for me, I think it was, I was 30 or about to be 30 when I started law school. And I have, of course had been out for some time and you'll see that there's a mix of folks in law school. Some are coming right out of college. And so the mentality is a little bit different, but what worked for me was to treat law school like it was a job. And so missing class, kind of like at the Air Force Academy, was never an option. Um, I was always in class. You take notes. That was my job, to be there, to listen, to be attentive, to take notes, and then study. And so I would just block off whatever hours I needed from, you know, the time I would wake up in the morning until late at night. I was either in the library or in a classroom or with my study group 
working. And that was, that was my job for three years was to be a law school student. And that level of making it a priority dedication and, and treating it with a level of seriousness, I think is what really helped me to get through. That's not to say I didn't have fun while I was in law school. I had, I had a blast, but I was also very, very serious about my work. What, um, so in terms of study skills or academic success, um, would you say there are any like mental skills that someone should develop in terms of analysis or argumentation or are there any, um, particular, like you said, taking notes and those type of things? What are, what are some of those specific technical skills that you'd say if you're advising your, your children, like if you're going to be good at law school, you got to do X, Y, Z. I think both to be good at law school and to be a good lawyer, you have to have the ability to communicate, read, write, and speak. Um, you, I can't emphasize enough reading, right? The volume of information that both as a law school student and then later as a lawyer that I read on any given day is it's tremendous. I do a lot of reading. So um, give us an idea. Of, like if it's how, how many pages of information is, are, are you saying is, uh, is tremendous? Gosh, that's hard to quantify pages. I think because the pages can vary to be honest, right? Yeah. Maybe on a light day, it's only 50 to a hundred pages, but it's not, page turning reading, you know yeah, what I'm saying? It's, it's not and easy boring reading. and hard to get through. Maybe well, it's not boring. <laughs> okay. some, of it, some of it may be boring. Yes, okay. but it's very dense. So I remember the first time I had to read a case when I was in law school, I opened it up like, this is like the first day, right? Homework assignment. And I, I didn't understand the word that they were saying. I mean, I really didn't. And I was like, what the heck? I had to go buy a copy of Black's Law Dictionary and I would go through and define in the margins. Like I still have some of my books. If you were here, I could show you. And I would define in the margins in pencil, all of the words and terms that I didn't know. And then, so that was my first read through. Then I'd read through again and try to incorporate the definition that I'd written into the margin into the case. And then read it again after that to really try to get, okay, so what's the point? That takes time. So maybe it was only 10 pages, but that 10 pages could take me an hour or more to get through because it was it wasn't intuitive. It wasn't something that you just innately have and you could just pick up and read it like, you know, a, a novel and be right. like, OK, I get it. This is what was being presented here. So um, reading is definitely something logic, being able to to logically approach a problem, see the big picture, but see the important pieces. Those types of skills, I think, are very important to being successful as an attorney. So it's not just uh, the like the Perry Mason or uh, the law and order type of stuff where you're like just on the stand, you know, like <laughs> smashing down your client, the prep work to get there or, or smashing down the opponent, but, uh, not your client. But the prep work to get there is a lot of reading, a lot of understanding of logic. And I'm sure the rules of law to be able to to be effective as an attorney. Yeah, I think that's one of the probably the more disappointing parts of, of becoming a lawyer, because it is it is anything but the Perry Mason on the stand you can't handle the truth. It's, it's not that it really isn't. It's 
the the devils and the details and the the beauty of it happens behind the scenes where you're pouring over um volumes of case law trying to find the right case the right precedent that sets you up in a good place it's i mean a lot of things don't even depend upon you know if you're talking about civil law or criminal law a lot of things don't even go to trial anymore and so it's about the slam dunk briefing that you wrote and provided to the court that most people in public will never see but the judge read it and agreed with your arguments so yeah reading and writing are are huge so i watch suits is it like that do you watch that show to know suits Uh, I don't watch Suits. Okay. I don't know. I'm so you're probably, sorry. You're probably like an attorney or like other people. Like uh, my wife has a hard time watching medical movies because it's not what medicine really is. So I'm sure watching Law shows is like, eh, no, no, that's how that works. Yeah, I go back and watch Law and Order because I remember I had my, uh, when I went to law school, my uh, dial tone on my, my ringtone on my phone was the Law and Order. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was such a nerd. Oh, my God. <laughs> But then like now I go back and I watch Law and Order because like that was my jam back in the day. And now I watch it. I'm like, yeah, no, it ain't that easy. (laughs) So you said that's one of the disappointing parts. But what's the what parts about the law are really fulfilling for you? How do you what do you enjoy about it? What what kind of gets your blood flowing? (sighs) The the victories, right? The persuasiveness of being able to take a position, dig and research and and find the things that support something. Or in my case now, because I'm not in a courtroom anymore, um, of being able to take a dense statute or regulation or whatever the case may be and break it down and explain it and provide it to my clients, which is now the bank, and help them to put that into operation and put it into work and and make it meaningful for them and and be persuasive and say, Hey, I know you want to do it this way, but here's the better way to do it. And this is why that kind of does it for me. Um, uh, And, you know, it's just, it's exciting to take something that may just seem like it's an obstacle for others and turn it into something that's meaningful and, help people be able to approach it, incorporate it and accomplish whatever it is that they have to accomplish and no longer have to see it as an obstacle, but help them to basically overcome whatever that obstacle may be. It's kind of creatively finding the answer and then winning the the argumentation point. Yeah. I love to win a good argument. I do. And there is just a weird sense of satisfaction in when you've been pouring over something, researching something, reading, and then you finally have that aha moment where it's like, I got it. I get it. This is the one. This is the, this is the way it's going to go down. This is the one that's going to make the winning argument. There's just a sense of like, I did that. That was good. So a person who is it, is it like, cause people say, man, if you can argue really well, if you can debate really well, this might be the career for you. Would you say that that's a true, true statement? Yes, but I also think a person that maybe doesn't enjoy public speaking and and debate can also make for a very fierce attorney. I think one of the things that I didn't realize when I was going to law school is how very diverse the practice of law is. There are some amazing lawyers 
that will never step foot in a courtroom and are deathly afraid of public speaking, but they are brilliant and amazing. And they love the research. They love the, the writing and the, the drive of that aspect. There are others like myself who enjoy public speaking and who love the thrill of getting up in front of somebody and arguing it down and being like, here's the way I see it and persuading people and having that human interaction. Um, there's so many different things. So I can't emphasize this enough. So many different things that you can do with a law degree and it opens so many different doors, um, politicians, um, CEOs, uh, you know, so you can go different places in the business world, judges, of course, lawyers, you know, that are representing clients. There's just a lot that you can do with a law degree. So I don't think that anyone should close a door to themselves because they say, oh, well, you know, research is not my first passion or getting in front of people speaking is not my first passion. That doesn't mean that you won't make a good lawyer. I think what makes a good lawyer is a person that is willing to dig deep, find answers and present them in such a way that they can persuade people. I think that's what makes for a good lawyer, whether you do that in writing or speaking or whatever format. Got it. Now you have, after law school, uh, you worked for a couple of different companies in different areas of the law. Um, Why don't you talk about the difference between bringing in Bradley Arendt and if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then at Wells Fargo. So, uh, Bradley Arant, um, Bolt Cummings was the law firm that I started with. It was actually Bolt Cummings, Connors and Barry when I first started. And then about a year into my time with the firm, they merged and became Bradley Arant, uh, Bradley Arant, Bolt Cummings, um, fairly, I'd say middle mid range size regional firm, excuse me, based in the Southeast, um, the law firm setting. Wow. You know, amazing, challenging, not for me. (laughs) And it is for some people, but ultimately working in a law firm setting was, was not my cup of tea. Um, so when you go to law school, depending upon your grades, depending upon, um, what the economy is like at that point in time and what you want to do, you will go and some associate somewhere. Um, or summer clerk. So these are the things you do. You intern during the summer in different positions. Some folks will go work um, for a local district attorney. Other folks may go and work for a firm. And I remember that um, if you usually, well, at least when I was in law school, if you had the really good grades, then you got to go to the really big firms for the summer. Right. And the big firms would wine and dine you and, they treat you really good during the summer. You eat great food and drink great wine. And, you know, you do work, but it's your summer associate. You're not a lawyer yet. So it's not the full blown experience of being a lawyer. And it feels good. It really feels good. And I remember when I was at law school, someone um, advised, you know, don't get trapped in the, the golden handcuffs. And I didn't really understand it at the time. And the golden handcuffs the best way I can explain it is you get out of law school where you're not making any money. And then all of a sudden you get, if you, if you decide to take that path, you take a a job at a well-paying firm and it's not your summer associate experience at all. You've got to bill hours and you work hard. Um, and the billable hour 
God, I think it was going to be the undoing of me. Um, but I don't so when you speak. say you build hours, um, break that a little bit down more layman. What, what do you mean by that? So the way a lawyer, if I were representing you, right. And <clears throat> you have to pay my rate and let's say my hourly rate is, I don't know, $375 an hour. So okay. for an hour's worth of my time, you're going to pay $375, right? Well, if I come to you and I bill you and I say, yep, 20 hours worth of time times 375. And all I show you is that I put together one 25 page brief that I filed with the court, right? We haven't even gone to trial. You're probably going to be like, wait, what? I pay how much for 25 pages? Right. (laughs) So it's a way, I think, for attorneys to break down for their clients what they've done. So this many hours went into research. We spent this much time consulting over the phone. I did a witness prep. Um, you know, I, I spent this much time drafting and revising a document. So it's how we break down what we're actually doing for our clients as part of our representation. And it's usually done in six minute increments. So I would go in to work when I was at the firm and I'd have like this little timer on my desktop and I would start the timer. And so like, if I was going to work on, let's say the Smith matter, I would have a little timer reserved for the Smith matter and I'd start it and I would jot down. These are the things I'm doing on the Smith matter. And so if I worked for 12 minutes on the Smith matter, because I made a phone call, I'd have to jot down and what I talked about on the phone call. Right. And you just, you, you clock your day six minutes at a time and then by the end of the month or the end of the year, actually, you have to have met your billable goal um, standard. So like firm. a performance value or performance measurement for you as an attorney is how many hours did you build? Because that's how you how a firm makes money. Exactly. And the more hours you build, the more money that the firm makes. But it's got to be good quality work. And it's just it it for me. And for a lot of attorneys, that ends up being a lot of pressure. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the the good billable hour. And so you're saying you you that was kind of you, you feel like it's like you got caught in a little bit of a hamster wheel there of grinding out a lot of billable hours. And that just wasn't for you. No, it wasn't for me. Um, I. Sounds like maybe it was kind of like back, being back in the military where you were working hard and maybe did it affect your time with family or your quality of life with your family? Was that part of the issue? I think it affected my quality time with my family, but I I wouldn't equate it to the military. So with the military, yes, I was away from my family, but I never felt like I wasn't doing something worthwhile. Okay. Um, If I'm to be completely honest, especially as a young associate, you're going to do like, some grunt work basically. And there were a lot of times where it was like, I'm putting in all these hours and I'm still not, I'm barely meeting the goal or, you know, just getting to where I need to be. And I don't really feel like I have anything to show for it. It's like, why did I go to law school for three years to sit in a dusty room going through old files, doing a document review? It is part of the process of being an attorney. It's part of the process of, you know, prepping for a case. It's just not one of, 
the prettier parts that anyone ever wants to think about. And it can be very grueling. Right. But the way a law firm usually works, especially when you get to the larger ones, is you got to put in your time, bill your hours. Then at the same time, you're supposed to be learning to build relationships with potential clients. And then you bring in your own clients. And then once you have your own clients, then you can have other associates working on your cases and your files and you get to give them some of the grunt work and you can, you know, pick and choose which aspects of the case you will work on. But it's a process of getting there. And the process just wasn't for me. (laughs) Right. So going through that process, then you decided to move from from, uh, the Bradley A. Rant, Bolt Cummings, over to Wells Fargo. What was that decision like? And, and what's the difference in terms of the, the work you do? Um, when I was in law school, here's another thing. A lot of times law schools will bring in current practicing attorneys and judges and have them speak to law school students. And they always had these luncheon panels where they would bring in in-house counsel. In-house is when you are an attorney for a company and you work in-house. And I remember hearing some of the other law students that knew more about being a lawyer um, than I did at the time. And they were like, in-house is the way to go. It's like the coveted thing. You know, it's really hard to get these in-house counsel positions. Right. And I would go to these seminars and I'd hear them talk. And I think one of the big differences is you still work hard. Let's, let, let me be clear. I still work very hard as an in-house counsel, but there's, I think, even more flexibility I usually tend to work closer to nine to five. I usually don't, there are exceptions, but for the most part, I don't work weekends and I don't work late nights. Um, So when I'm on, I'm on it and I'm working hard, but when I'm not, you know, that's, that's my time. Um, And there seems to be from a corporate America sense, a little more respect of, your personal time when you're in a firm and you're responding to clients and maybe your client is that big corporate entity. When the corporate entity calls, whether that's on a Saturday or whenever, there's the expectation that the lawyer's going to be there on the other end to answer. Right. Um, and it's not the same way in house. So the, the move for me, uh, was really about wanting to still really use my law degree wanting to practice law, but being able to spend and have more time with my kids. So I had both of my kids. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. Um, And I had both of my kids while I was at the law firm. And I think that's important to mention because I do not want in any way, shape, form, or fashion, anyone to take away from this that I'm saying law firms are horrible places to work. I think it depends upon your personality. I think it depends upon... Yeah. It's in in your lifestyle. And the firm was the firm setting worked for me to be able to have my kids. And they were very supportive of that and me being able to do the things that I needed to do for my family. So at the time it worked. It's just that as I progressed in my career and with my family, I wanted something different. Hmm. Um, So the transition to Wells Fargo, I was very selective about where I would apply for different positions. And Wells Fargo was one of very few in-house positions that I applied for. And I had to apply for a lot. Um, so anybody that's looking, if you're a current attorney or you're going to become an attorney and you're wanting to go in-house, 
I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say they applied, they didn't get it, and they're frustrated. It usually doesn't happen on the first, you know, shot out the the park, right? It's one of those where, again, plan, <laughs> be flexible <laughs> and support, right? And a lot of times it's about who you know, making those connections. Do you already know someone in the company? Maybe already know someone in the legal department, making those connections because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of competition usually for a very few number of in-house positions. And you do it quickly. So, so I want to slow it down a little bit. You, first of all, you went from working at a firm, which is like, you know, your job is to go out there and hunt down clients and work for other big client companies to working in-house, which is those big companies have their own lawyers that they have on their own team that are employees of those big companies. And you didn't just go to any company. You slid by this. You went to work for Wells Fargo, one of the big you know, the big monster banks that still exist after 2008, you're at a prestigious, huge bank organization where you had the opportunity to, to beat out the competition to make to be in-house counsel, which is pretty awesome. Um, and so you're, what you're saying is, is that, you know, you got to be patient to try to get that kind of a selected position. It sounds like to me. Yes. And I applied for, I think probably at least five different positions with Wells Fargo before I finally got a call and got on the track to interview for a position. So it wasn't, it wasn't just immediate for me either. (laughs) And you persevered. So it's patience and perseverance. The same thing you talked about back whenever you were going to apply to the Academy. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Can you, um, uh, to get a picture of the law, I like to hear stories. So as much as you can, the whole attorney-client privilege thing. I hear that on suits a lot. You know, it's a big deal. Um, any stories that's, that let you say, like, this is a cool thing that happened on the firm side. This is a cool thing I do. Um, it was far going to give a flavor of what, what work in that arena looks like. Oh, let's see. A cool thing. There are a couple of cool things from the firm side. I remember as a summer associate, I got to participate in uh, mediation. So you got two sides that are involved in an active lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, and fighting over money. That's what civil lawsuits basically boil down to. Yeah. And um, the mediation is, it it costs a lot of money to go to trial because in order to go to trial, attorneys got to put in a lot of work, a lot of paperwork and that, as we've discussed earlier, the billable hour, that costs money. So anytime the two parties that are in dispute can settle early via mediation, it's usually a lot of times the better outcome for those companies. Um, And a good settlement is where both parties walk away feel like, dang it, I didn't win. Right. Because that means you probably really went somewhere in the middle ground. So someone decided to take less and someone ended up spending more than what they wanted to spend. Um, so I'm sitting at the table with the firm's client and, you know, the actual attorney is there. And I, again, I'm just a summer associate, right? So I've got what, two years of law school under my belt at this point. I'm n- no way near shape ready to be a lawyer. And they're trying to decide, you know, how much to offer up. And I, I knew the facts of the case. I had read it and I understood what was at issue or whatever. And for whatever reason, 
the the company head looks over at me and he goes, well, what do you think? Hmm. <laughs> of the, your client, the, the head of the company client. Right. Wow. And so I told him what I thought. I was like, I think you should do. And I gave him a dollar amount because that's what he wanted. I gave him the dollar amount. I was like, I think you should do this. And here's why. And that was actually what he ended up offering. And nice. that got it done. Um did you get your summer intern bonus off of that number? Yeah, no, there's no such thing. I got an extra <laughs> glass of wine maybe out of that. <laughs> right, right, right. But they ultimately ended up settling right around where I suggested that it would settle. Okay. And so there was, you know, kind of like a little like, ooh, I don't know what I'm doing, but brush your shoulder off. You did something right. Right. Um, and But the client, I think the real part about that was the client was as happy as it could be with the outcome, right? Mm. It wasn't horrible. Wasn't great. Again, nobody walks away from settlement feeling like, yeah, knocked it out the park. But he was pleased that they were able to get it done for less than what he really thought he was going to have to spend. So that was one opportunity um, at the firm. Another one was actually being in court and representing clients. I did a, um, a pro bono case. I did a couple of pro bono cases, even and a pro death bono is pro bono is when you represent, um, someone at no cost. Okay. So you do it for free. Yep. Um, because the, the legal field as a profession truly believes that everyone should have access to justice. And so most attorneys, make a conscious effort to go out and to do something to represent someone to provide some type of counsel at no cost right. to those that may not otherwise be able to get access to a lawyer. Cause Got it. you know, um, so this one particular case and it was one of the, is the first full blown trial. Why I, I was sitting first chair. So I was leading the representation of the client and it mm -hmm. was, you know, the big scheme of things, it was a small claim dispute, but it was over some uh, a car repair. The other side ended up bringing the engine block into the courtroom. Wow. <laughs> I know it was crazy. And the, the opposing side, um, English was the second language. So had a translator that we had to use and I'm trying to, you know, examine him, cross examine the, the witness on the stand with the interpreter, there's the engine block. Oh, by the way, I was eight months pregnant at the time. So oh, wow. the judge was, the judge was very gracious and kept giving me a lot of breaks so I could go pee. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and at one point I didn't, I was, I was just, uh, again, I was a young associate and I'm like in over my head. I'm trying to talk about these engine parts that I know nothing about. Right. And the judge comes down because apparently he puts together cars on the weekends and he's like no i think you mean this part here and he's pointing in the engine block and we got through the case and it was just it was such an amazing experience being able to try a case from start to finish and right. i would love to tell you that i won and that my client got what she wanted and that would be a lie she uh -oh. lost <laughs> but the big thing for her was that she was finally heard right? and that someone else was advocating for her. someone else believed enough in her that they were willing to spend the time and effort to go in and speak for her because she wasn't very well educated. Mm. And so, you know, she wouldn't have been able to say some of the things the way I said them, but I was able to do that for her. Yeah. And at the end of the, the trial, 
she gave me a big hug. She was really, really happy, even though she didn't win the, I think it was $5,000 that was in dispute. She didn't win the money, but she was happy because she felt like someone else cared enough about her and what was important to her to fight for her. Nice. And so that was huge. That was huge. I really enjoyed that experience. Yeah. There's a way as an attorney where it's not just about the money, but you get to give back as well. Yes. Yes. So at, at Wells Fargo, are there any stories that you can tell that say like, this is the flavor of what it's like to be here that kind of is it that, that, that kind of make it gratifying for you? I think working at Wells Fargo is very gratifying. Um, how do I say this? So being in any corporate setting this day and age can sometimes be challenging, right? Um, and I pride myself in working for Wells Fargo because I truly believe, and I, I, I sincerely mean this, and I'm not just saying this because we're recording this call. I truly believe that Wells Fargo really tries to do right by its customers every single time. And that it's not just about making money, but it's about being the best bank that it can for its customers. Yeah. And so my job as a lawyer is to help them meet that goal. And to also make sure that the bank, you know, is complying with all of the various rules and regulations and laws that are out there. And there are a lot. And it is a very big bank. And it is sometimes very challenging to make sure that, you know, we're rocking and dotting every I and crossing every T. Um, I think one of the, the best moments I've had since being in-house counsel is being able to persuade some of what I would call the harder nosed folks. Um, so you get on a call with your clients because I'm literally working with people all over the country, right? Yeah. In different time zones. And you've, I've read the law. I've, I've looked at the situation, the facts of whatever the issue is. And I've got my opinion, my legal opinion of this is what needs to happen. And then it's met with some opposition. And being able to break it down, show them where I'm coming from, show them how where I'm coming from won't be an impediment, how we can make it work and how it's the right thing to do and put it in place. And then, you know, these calls, sometimes they can go on for weeks where we're discussing a certain issue. And are you talking about talking to people who are internal to Wells Fargo who want to do something that that pushes, uh, you know, that that you have to figure out the legal way to do it the right way. Or are you talking about people that are outside of Wells Fargo Fargo that you're trying to give advice to? Um, So it's people that that are inside of Wells Fargo. And I, I wouldn't say that it's, they're trying to do anything that's pushing the envelope, but it's challenging maybe processes that are already in place Okay, and showing them here's a way to do it better. Got it. Right. And sometimes, you know, nobody likes change. And so showing someone that you want them to make a change and here's why and convincing them in the long run that it's worth spending maybe the extra money and worth doing that extra thing to make this change. And then the satisfaction and the feeling of accomplishment when there's the aha moment and they see where you're coming from and they're like, yes, yes, this is what we're going to do. We agree. And then it becomes their plan and their thing and they run with it. Um, That's a really great feeling. 
So in the context of I'm I'm sure like the biggest um, personalities and like you said, the hard nosed people are in the banking industry, like, you know, attorneys, bankers, those type of folks often have really powerful, strong, outsized personalities and ways of doing things. But also there's a certain traditional culture to the banking industry as well. Have you ever had to deal with any kind of um, bias or challenges in that arena? And if so, how did you overcome them? You know, I don't know that I've ever had to deal with any direct bias um, since I've been at Wells Fargo, especially as it relates to, to race or gender. Um, but there are some hard nosed folks that I had to win over and it was a long, hard fought battle. And it really was just not backing down from this is, this is what Wells Fargo has hired me to do. I am going to do my job. You may not always like or agree with what I have to say, but I will be heard. And convincing those folks that I will be heard um, wasn't always easy, but I have, I think, gained a lot of respect of some folks that otherwise, if I had allowed myself to back down from a position, I wouldn't have gained that respect. So you said you gained respect. Is it just the not backing down that got that for you? Or was there anything else that added to you gaining that respect? It's it's not just the not backing down, right? You got to be, you can hold a position, right? <laughs> but if it's untenable <laughs> and yeah. it's not, you know, if you can't back it up, it's not the right position to take. So it's doing the work, doing the research, digging in, looking at it from all angles, challenging the way the other side is looking at it as well as challenging how I am viewing it to Mm. make sure to test it, poke holes in my theory. Right. Mm. And being able to concede is also just as big, right? If if every time all I'm doing is arguing my position, holding my position and never seeing anything from the other side or never willing to see that maybe there's some weak, points in my argument, right. Doesn't, it doesn't serve my purpose. Right. So I think the way I've won that respect is yes, holding my position, but yes, being able to concede, yes, being able to show them here's where I started in my position, but I agree. We poked holes here, here, and here, but we've also poked holes in your position here, here, and here, here's the middle ground or here's the best way and and working together. It's a collaboration. It's not just about me winning and being right and, and having the best argument. It's about making it work for the company. That sounds to me like humility that you have the strength of your position where you need to, but the humility to say I could be wrong and Hey, here's why I was wrong where you are wrong. That's, I think it's a very underrated characteristic. I think it's a very important characteristic. I can give you another example of humility at its best. So I was reviewing a document. This is while I was at Wells Fargo and it was in my opinion, um, subpar. It was, it wasn't the best writing I had ever seen. And I got frustrated, you know, at point of weakness, I'm human. I got frustrated. I try not to make anything ever personal, but it was late on a Friday. I slammed the document down on my desk. And then 
I made the the big mistake of going straight to the email and typing right then what I thought of the document right. and sent the email off. And I didn't reply just to the one person that it sent it to me. No, I replied to all and just, you know, just the let infamous them, reply all reply all. Just let everybody know what I think about this poorly written document, wasting my time. And it made me sound like a pompous, arrogant, just it didn't, it did not put me in the best light. And right. I came back the next day. I read the email. <laughs> I regretted sending the email. I still stand by that it was poorly written. That part was true, but there's a better way to do things. Yeah. And so I took that opportunity to, to eat a little humble pie. And I think this is an important lesson. If you're going to blast somebody out in front of everybody, then you need to be man enough or woman enough to apologize to everyone and not just to that one person. So I right. sent an email the very next day and apologized in to the person, but in front of the entire group and then followed it up with a call and it was very well received. But hmm. the point is again, yes, a lot of it is about humility. I don't think anyone, as much as I would like to say, I'm always right. And I joked earlier about, you know, with arguments with my husband that I'm always right, but I'm not. You know, I, I'm not always going to be right. I don't always have all the experiences or the viewpoint or vantage that the other person does. And it's about being humble, about being able to also see things and learn things. And I think that's an important part of being a lawyer. You, we talked earlier about, you know, what are some of the key skills? I think one that we over that I overlooked, I guess, is being able to learn something new. Hmm. Lawyers represent um, lots of different clients in lots of different situations, we're, we're different aspects of the law, different factual situations. And you have to pick up volumes of information about something that you may be completely unfamiliar with very quickly. And that's an important skill. But you can't do that if you can't humble yourself and learn from the expert. Yeah. So a lawyer representing a doctor or a lawyer representing a banker, whatever the case may be, I am not a banker by trade. So there are lots of things that the, the banker with the big sexy MBA knows that I don't. And I have to stop and listen and really learn and absorb and ask questions and let them teach me first. And then once they can teach me what they know, then I can then lay the law over the top of that and yeah. then help them. But if you can't learn first and humble yourself, it's going to make it very, very hard to truly represent your clients. Very nice. I like that. I like I like how you put that. And um, and you obviously had to work hard to get there to that position of respect. If you can make it easier uh, for the next person coming behind you, what kind of obstacles would you take out of the way? Honestly, I don't know that there are any obstacles that I would take out of the way. I think, I mean, what, what we've already talked about, I think will help to sidestep some obstacles. Yeah. But I truly believe in living a life of no regrets. Does that mean that I haven't made some mistakes? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means with every obstacle, every challenge, every mistake, every victory, that each and every one of those experiences helps to shape me and make me better. So from the negative experiences, from the obstacles, from the failures, I learn a bit about 
who I want to be, what parts I reject in me and what parts I need to add on to me. So even, you know, I've met some hard nosed people that are just awful to deal with. Right. And I can, I could choose to just ignore or try to forget that person. But instead what I try to purposefully do is acknowledge the negative aspects in that person Mm -hmm. and then take a really close look at myself and say, do I have any of those negative traits in me Wow! and remove them from me because I don't want to be that that I see in that person. And that way you're getting something good out of every single interaction that you have with people and every single experience in life, because they're always helping to make you better. Wow. So you embrace the obstacles. Try to. <laughs> Very nice. Well, you mentioned the colonel who was your academic advisor um, and your parents, obviously. Who were any other important mentors in your life and in your career? If you were to name a couple. Oh, wow. Um, too many to name. I, I think it kind of goes with what I was just saying, that there, the, there's a verse in the Bible, and I won't quote it exactly, but there's a time and a season um, for everything. And I think there's a time and a season for every person to be a mentor, right? So TQ, I'd be lying if I didn't say that at some point in time, you were a mentor to me and that you helped to shape me into who I am because of the interactions that you and I had, you know, years ago back at the Academy and back working in minority enrollment. Right. Um, so there's so many different mentors, some maybe for longer periods of time. Sure. But I mean, down to my kids, each Mm. person that I have a relationship with really just, I don't know, they, they, they challenge me to, to do better, to want better, to, to be better. Mm. Yeah. That's, I I really appreciate that perspective. Um, man, there's so many different, man, there's so many different discussions that are, that could come off of that, the, the, the embracing the obstacles, just that idea is one, um, learning from everyone, like the, the mentorship of everyone around you. That's an amazing perspective to have. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot there. Um, and, and just, is there, is there one mentor or two, you know, even given your answer you just gave, do any stand out that you would say, you know what, something's been significant in my life or career. Um, if you haven't already mentioned it, that this person brought to me over to help me get to where I am today? Or, or would you still say, you know what? It's been kind of like a, a cloud of witnesses, so to speak, but a cloud of mentors for you. No, I think I stick with the, the original answer. It really yeah. is. And I, I don't mean to, to be difficult, but it, no, it really no, not is, at all. it's, it's exactly that it is a lot of different people in a lot of different ways I sometimes feel like I use people, right? <laughs> I kind of feel bad about this because I can point to different people and say, you know, I learned so much from Carol about being really sweet and yeah. kind and genuine. And I learned a lot from, you know, X person, Tia or Melinda or, and the, the list goes on and on and on about, you know, being this or doing that or how to be a good parent. Um, you know, how to be a good sense of community and community service, having a, a business drive. There's just so many people 
that I just see things in people and I'm like, I want that in my life. And, and yeah. I, I try to, I mooch off of people and I, I feel like I'm sucking the life from them because I, I, and that's why I say, I, sometimes I feel like I, I use people because even without us formally establishing this mentor mentee relationship, I'm pulling from them and their experiences constantly. Yeah. That's I, I, what it makes me think is that people may start to see by hearing this, that they're missing mentorship opportunities that are all around them. So I, I think that's really cool. Um, and you read a lot. So if you could think of, are there three books um, that you'd give as a gift that, that you think would be good developmentally for, for someone listening to this? So, um, and I remember you mentioned this question to me in advance, and this is the one question that I honestly can say challenged me the most. And the reason why is because it, it's kind of like who are the mentors, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the important part is to read, hmm. right? And to just read whatever it is, whether it's a page turner, a, a romance novel, you know, a self-improvement book, the Bible, whatever it is, just read. I like to think that I am well-read and at different phases of my life, different books have had different meanings for me. Hmm. Um, for instance, when we were working in minority enrollment, I remember Captain well, then Captain Vance, DJ Vance recommended a book called um, Conversations with God, I think was mm. the title of it. And I read that book and that book ended up shaking me to my very core. And I question God and religion and my entire foundation. And at one point I felt like the book was the devil and <laughs> I hated the fact that I had read it. Yeah. In hindsight, I'm so glad that I did because it helped me to poke holes and to challenge yeah. and to really get a sense of who I am spiritually and what it means to be me spiritually. Um, I, you know, oh, I, I read Roots when I was in high school, cover to cover. I've never seen the movie. My husband gives me grief about that, but I read the book. Yeah. And that at that point in my life was very pivotal. Um, the autobiography of Malcolm X was one. Um Atlas Shrugged was another book that I read in another phase of my life that at the time meant a lot to me, The Invisible Man. I mean, the list of, of books that I've read right. that have meant different things to me in different phases of my life. But again, I think the important part is just be well read, right? Again, whether it's the Bible or a self-help, self-improvement, just a fun book, read. Because from reading you experience something through someone else's eyes. And so it right. goes back to that same concept of experiencing life through someone else's eyes, gives you an opportunity to take bits and pieces and to also shave off bits and pieces that you don't want in your life. So just be well-read, whatever it is, just, just read, just read, nice. read, read. Well, you said you also have fun. Uh, what do you do for fun? If there are a couple things that you, uh, you enjoy doing. Well, in the last three years, I took up uh, Taekwondo and okay. I am now a first degree black belt in Taekwondo. I um, successfully tested for that last Very nice. March. Wow. Yeah, so, so if people don't like your arguments at work, you whoop their tail. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. But I did threaten one client once and he, he reminds me of that quite often. But right. um, 
only, only in jest. But yeah, so I, I love going and getting into a, a good spar match or getting Very a good nice. sweat punching things. So that's um, a little obscure, but, and it's something I can do with my kids because they also do Taekwondo. So okay. um, it's, it's a family fun activity. Uh, clearly I love to read. Um, I love just like hanging out with my family and doing goofy things, whether it's like bike riding or we have my kids and I call it tickle fest where literally some Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, we're just laying around on the bed. Just I'm tickling them until they're about ready to pee on themselves. Um, you know, just spending time with family, whether, whatever we're doing, going to movies, um, all those kinds of things are fun for me. Guilty pleasures. Yeah. I like some cheesy TV shows that I probably shouldn't. I still read, um, not every day, but I still make a point usually at least two or three times a week to go on soaps.com. Okay. Cause I grew up watching young and the restless. Okay. And, um, so I go on there and read about young and the restless and bold and beautiful. And I still, I don't know. It does it for me to hear about Nikki and Victor's struggles. That's crazy. <laughs> We're my family was a days of our lives house. So, uh, you know, um, I only watched days of our lives for about a year and it was because of timing. That was the show that happened to be on based on my school schedule at the right. time. But, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a CBS soaps fan, so gotcha. yeah, that's definitely one of my my dirty little secrets of of pleasure. So, if they want to, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on LinkedIn. Okay, and I am on Facebook. Um, I guess I have a Twitter account. I don't know, but um, it's Jocelyn Eason. Okay, and yeah, spelled like Joycelyn, and um, yeah. You can find me there or you can reach out to TQ and he can help you find me directly via email. Very nice. Well, Joe, it's been a great conversation um, and and I've loved learning more about the story and and also learning more about these very powerful things that I think could help people do what they're trying to do uh, from learning from your experience, um, making the plan, being flexible and getting help where you where you need it. And um, and I really appreciate the time. My guest today has been Jocelyn Eastland. Jocelyn, thank you. Thank you very much for putting this together for folks. This is um, a valuable tool that I think will definitely have some lasting power and an impact on folks. So thank you for doing this.